Shapeshifters on The Money Show. Tonight's shapeshifter was going to be a medical doctor, but after four years at Vitz Medical School, he bailed on medicine and he went into management. His career went up to greater heights. He was the managing director of Otis. That's the lift company, Greater Heights. We're, having, we're on a roll tonight. He worked at SAA for a bit with Coleman Andrews, and most recently and currently, he's got big plans to frack the Karoo. His name is Bonang Mohale. He's the chairman of Shell Marketing South Africa. He's in the Money Show studio this evening. Why did you bail on medicine? That's a perfectly respectable career, surely. Uh, thank you, Bruce, for having me. I really appreciate it. I suppose all I wanted to do was to be a manager. When you grew up in the township like I did... Where, where was that? Uh, in Katlehong. Katlehong, okay. uh, Just outside, across the railway line from Alberton. Yep. So the people that you see are the doctors, the lawyers, the teachers, uh, the social workers, the nurses. That's about the sum total you have. And then I go to Vets, uh, 1981, and I see... 1981? Uh, yes, I see aeronautics, time, yeah? I see engineering, something that we're never exposed to. And then... I hugged a manager for the first time, the late Lottenhoof. I said, I wanted to be like this. Lottenhoof? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, but, but when, I mean, 1981, there were, there were severe restrictions on what you could and couldn't study. Hugely. It was fact, okay for a black guy to become a teacher because that would be useful for, for the apartheid regime. But hold on a second, a manager? No, 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 in those days, surely. No, in fact, even when we went to vets, um, we had to apply to the Minister of Home Affairs um, and get special ministerial consent. And at that time, he would ask you, why do you want to go to vets? What's wrong with Medunsa mm-hmm. or the University of Natal? Wentworth Black section, yeah. uh, for that matter. Um, but you know, at that time we were young. We thought we were fearless. We could boil the ocean. We could solve the world's problem. And I wanted to compete with absolutely the best. At that time, uh, Vets was probably in the top two after UCT, yeah. and they used to swap UCT number one, yeah. Vets, and then vice versa. And that's where I wanted to go. So we waited almost for four months. Uh, on the twenty seventh of April, the ministerial consent came. There were twenty seven of us. After African students and the minister said yes to 11. At that time I think the starkness and the unfairness dawned on me because some of the people that the minister said no to they had 10 times better grades than those people that the minister said yes to. I mean, I just, I mean, I mean, we know the stories well, but when they're personal, they're they're, they're even more powerful. So this is 1981 when you started, Vitz. 1985, you bail on your medical degree. Do Do you complete any sort of studies at all? In fact, I have absolutely no regrets. I think that's probably the second best decision I ever took. Um, I think I, I enjoyed medicine. I loved anatomy. Mm. I loved dissection. Uh, but then I met a most wonderful, good quality human being, Susan, who on the 24th of August this year will be happily married to for 33 glorious years. <laughs> the she, number she, one will, best decision. Will, will, she, will she be happily married for 33 years or you happily married for 33 years? I suppose she's married. I'm happy. Oh, <laughs> But, but but so do you have any academic qualifications? Yes, in fact, from then on, I went okay. on to study marketing uh, for about eighteen months. I did the postgraduate degree in marketing management okay. through the Institute of Marketing Management. Um, I did uh, the postgraduate diploma in marketing management, and then I we, we, amongst the first group who did the CMSA, Chartered Marketer of Southern okay. Africa, Chartered Accountants do CASA, yeah. uh, and of course, my management education I then completed as I was already working at institutions like um, the US of A at IMD in Lausanne in Switzerland, what, what was the fir- what, School of what Business was, what, was the fir- what was the first job? 
My very first job, seventeenth uh, of April, nineteen eighty four, was as a professional <laughs> sales representative for a pharmaceutical company called Pfizer, spelled with a P. Yes, uh, Dennis Chambers was the country manager, uh, and Gary Scott was my boss as the marketing director. I worshipped the ground on his. He walked, and really, that's where the first love of marketing uh, fell. What I did mean, you sell? Um, Drugs. Although we were peddling information, we launched drugs like Feldin, uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. We launched Prosca for benign prosthetic hyperplasia. We launched an HMG reductase inhibitor, uh, Zoco, uh, for... Uh, for high but levels you were, of cholesterol. You were, you were using your half medical degree of uh, quite effectively as a salesman. Oh, the four years didn't go to waste. But also I could look at Susan and see whether she was angry uh, based from those four years. <laughs> so it wasn't really wasted. Uh, John Robbie, my colleague, describes his job as a salesman as the best learning of his life. I, I, I can confirm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you've got to be able to do absolutely anything. You could, You sometimes have to park your ego at the door. You sometimes have to do a deal you don't want to do. And it, it teaches you some very important life skills. And resilience. But also what I loved mm. about it is that you, you developed a thick skin. And when you wanted to see 10 customers and the first seven said no, <laughs> you got excited and say, I'm getting closer to the one that will say yes. So you learned never to give up. And that tenacity, that singularity of purpose, uh, that purposefulness, uh, deliberateness, I'm still using today in life, in marriage. Uh, and also when I'm helping to bring up my two divine daughters. Beautiful. Now, um, when does the first management job come? Because you bail on your, uh, on your medical degree to become a manager. I mean, that's a come down if ever there was one. No, in fact, I had so much fun. So the first five years at Pfizer, yeah. I was a rep. Uh, had a man, wonderful company car. Every six weeks, I'll do a country trip. I did Zambia, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Botswana. I did all the homelands. Uh, I probably stayed at the best Sun International hotels oh. at that time. Uh, they were second to none. You were regular at the Wild Coast Sun. Absolutely. And then after five years, of course, I got promoted after winning the rep of the year and then my team being the team of the year. Um, and then I became a product manager new business development manager. Uh, I ended up being an export manager and started for the first time in the history of Mechshop and Dome, still working for Barry Scott for 10 years, um, where we started exporting uh, pharmaceutical pro- for mm. the first time to Zambia, Zimbabwe, yeah. Malawi, Botswana, and Namibia. In fact, I remember my first sale in Zimbabwe, negotiating with the Minister of Health, uh, setting up the business, finding partners, coming to help them with the launch, helping with the registration of the drugs. It was ex-factory fa- sales of 740000 by the time I left, we were selling five million a month. Jeez. But I mean, you've got a massively diverse career because you got out of that and eventually end up in the Otis Lift Company. I mean, you don't get further away from pharmaceuticals than that, surely. Absolutely. In fact, when I was headhunted to be the managing director of the world's biggest and oldest elevator company, um, looking after the whole of the sub-saturn operation. Let me test how good you are at this, okay? Yes. In which building does the oldest Otis elevator exist in South Africa? 44 Main Street. It's the Anglo-American head office. It's still written with gold-plated, way good Otis. Okay, so you win. All right. <laughs> I'm testing your memory, which is exceptional. Um, but, but you work at the Otis Lift Company. How do you then end up at SAA working under Coleman Andrews as one of the top people at SAA 1990? What would that have been? Absolutely. 99, uh, be- 
yeah, in fact, I was there for nine months. And then mm. 2000, at the end of 1999, I went to become chief executive at Sunla. But, you know, the way I looked at it, I said, after 11 glorious years in pharmaceuticals, the best learning of my life was headhunted to be managing director of Otis. Mm. I remember speaking to Mario Abajo, the vice president of EMEA region. I said, what do I know about Lyft? He said, that's precisely why we want you. Because the management principles, whether you're selling potato chips, lifts, mm. or bums on seats, fundamentally the same. Uh, it's about really how you deal, engage, interact, and interface, motivate people. And then from there, I was headhunted by government. Minister Jeff Hadebe was public enterprises man- ma- manager right. at that time to be the two IC to Coleman Andrews. Um, at what do you know African about airlines? airlines? Again, yes. nothing. But you see, I'd learned from yeah. being a lift mechanic from wearing white coats and then speaking to doctors who at that time thought they were answerable to God and then went to SAA, worked with a truly Where pilots amazing... think they're answerable only to God. Oh, yes, they? absolutely. That's one of the rumors. And, and I think what we learned from Coleman Andrews was the whole art of revenue management, sending the right aircraft to the right destination with the right capacity. Um, and I was looking after three portfolios, global sales, revenue management, and then lastly, strategic alliances. We put 18 of them together. We saved SAA 11 million rents a day, just the deal to fly directly to Sydney rather than Perth in mm. a commercial and coach agreement that we did with Qantas. Why did you only stay there nine months? Look, you know, once you have spent all your life in the private sector and then you go to the public sector, even today, the public sector is quite a challenge at the best of time where you have 10 bosses, the director general thinks he's your boss, the minister thinks he's your boss, and then we had Coleman Andrews, who was the president of SAA, who thought he was my boss. Remember, Saki Makosoma was the CEO yeah. of Transnet. He was technically my boss. So imagine being answerable to four or five people. Talk about lack of role clarity and definition. And Is that half the problem that SAA faces today? I think all state-owned enterprises. So in the private sector, it is possible to catch somebody stealing from you on Monday you have fired them on Wednesday and still have uh, followed due process. At SAA, you do the same thing. Mm. For 18 months, you are still finalizing the terms of the Commission of Inquiry. Mm. It's a mess. Then he moves on to Shell, and I want to find out all about fracking the Karoo. It's going to be contentious, of course, as licenses come through to do so. My shapeshifter this evening is Bonang Mohale, who remembers every single date in the book. I wonder when last he forgot his wedding anniversary. I suspect not. Have you ever? If I did, I would sleep on the floor. Really, I'm married to a truly magnificent, wonderful human being. How many times have you slept on the floor in the last 33 years? Three times. Here we go. (laughs) Bonang Mohale is tonight's shapeshifter. My shapeshifter is Bonang Mohale. is the chairman of Shell Marketing South Africa. Shell will be one of the uh, key players in the Karoo. Um, he has had a varied career. He's run five different businesses over the last 20 years or thereabouts. Since 17th of April, 1984. Yes, how about? Yeah, okay. It yeah, gives away my youth. It does give away your youth. But, I mean, your memory, Lolo this evening says, please ask your guest if he's considered being an historian. You're very much a personal historian. It's so interesting when you talk to people who run businesses and the amount of detail people know about their businesses. Do you find that that's absolutely crucial when it comes to running I suppose when you're starting out a division, knowing what's happening above and below you, when you're running a business, knowing what's happening in every department below you. It's absolutely critical. I think it's the only respect you can pay to your colleagues to show the investment in time, energy and effort. So it's about really uh, being particular about knowing your business, your market, your competitors, but also the numbers. 
I said off air to say it's really about having your heart uh, on the people but your head on absolutely the numbers. That attention to detail, the singularity of purpose helps. That's what business is about. It is detail. Johan Rupert and the Queen of the Netherlands don't want you to frack the Karoo. Why are you so determined to do so? They used not to want, but after three personal engagements and interactions with Johan, I think he has uh, accepted the fact that if there's anybody in South Africa who can responsibly hydraulically fracture the Karoo, then it is Shell. Is it possible to responsibly hydraulically fracture? Remember, this is a 60-year-old technology in five continents, so why Whilst mistakes were made 60 years ago and maybe up until 35 years ago, uh, we have learned everything. We know the exposures, uh, the risks are known, and they can be adequately mitigated. And those risks are around mostly three areas. First, it's about the availability of water in an arid area like the Karoo. Secondly, it's about contamination, again, of these water aquifers. Thirdly, it's about constantly engaging with the, remember the people involved, and then lastly, of course, it's about some sort of recognition compensation for the farmers, because you're asking for permission to be in their land. In the US of A, when this happened, people became dollar billionaires almost overnight. Mm. But the reason why we're pursuing it as Shell is because we are after responsible energy solutions. We want to help South Africa to be a capable state. We are short of energy. There's 10 million South Africans who have absolutely no access to any form of energy whatsoever. That's 20% of South Africa's population. What is under the crew? Do we actually know? Has anybody gone down and measured the cubic meters? How do you measure, how do you measure gas? It comes in cubic meters. cubic feet. So the, cubic feet. Uh, yeah, the answer is you don't know. But with the technology that we know today, for instance, we know that 72% of the world's proven Crude reserves sit under one country, Saudi Arabia. For the last 50 years, they've been pumping 11 million barrels a day every day. So that, even though it was done such a long time ago, it was probably 99.9% accurate. So today, the International Energy Agency of the US of A says there's 485 trillion cubic feet of gas under the Karoo. Um, and if they revise what the does figures that trans- down... Well, I mean, that's a big number, but it, it means nothing. 485 trillion cubic feet of, of gas. What does that translate to? So what it means is that we probably have in the world today more... Uh, gas reserves than there is crude, about 250 years worth at current production levels. In fact, when countries have two TCFs, it justifies building a pipeline. The national oil company, Petro SA, in all its years, from the measure of Sukor uh, and Moschas, uh, producing 57,000 barrels a day, every day, of gas to liquid, have never used more than one TCF. That's the magnitude. <laughs> um, why is it such an emotional and emotive issue? It is emotive, one, because land has always been emotive. Number two, it is emotive because, remember, there are some radical environmentalists whose only reason for existence is to ensure that companies like ours keep the coal in the ground, the crude in the hole and indeed the gas within the rock. They I mean, will never rest. That's their reason for existence. But if we, look at, if we look at the Niger Delta and we look at areas like Nigeria and we look at the pollution issues that happen in the oil fields around there, has Shell covered itself in glory? Have the multinational oil companies covered themselves in glory? I mean, have you earned the right uh, to our trust? 
to go and frack the Karoo? I think it's work in progress. Uh, like I said, mistakes were done in the past, mm. including the Niger Delta by all international oil companies. But also what we have done is that we have provided the world with energy. There are three incontrovertible truths. The first is that the world energy demand is increasing. At current production levels, we are unlikely to meet that growing demand. Lastly, the more we produce, the more we pollute the environment. And the challenge of companies like ourselves Mm. is what is it that we can do to reduce our footprint, but also to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and indeed ultimately CO2 emissions. We spend 30 billion US dollars per annum on research and development to find ways that will do less of that. And the case for gas is precisely that. It is affordable it's acceptable and indeed acceptable. When do I get the first access to energy out of the Karoo? Are we on a process where there are dates in place or there's still thousands of bureaucratic hoops to jump through? Theoretically, the worst case scenario from the minute you are awarded the licenses, exploration rights agreement, it would take us about nine years to get to full production. But remember, it takes on paper five years to build a coal-fired power station, to build as a combined cycle gas turbine for electricity generation, you could do that in 36 months. And it's half the CO2 emissions at one-tenth the cost. I mean, we I look at just, I, I know I, you heard the story, we talking to the guys at SAA about taking tobacco and turning it into jet fuel. I mean, it's this sort of technology that could change the world. Absolutely. And the biggest challenge is to find innovative ways to use renewable energies, wind, solar, but also uh, biofuels, uh, bioethanol, and you can have that uh, from the cactus that comes from the Mm. karoo, dry and arid. You can do that from sunflower oil. You can do that from sugarcane. We have invested 7.5 billion US dollars in buying 50% of a company called Cogen in Brazil, the world's biggest bioethanol producer. In South Africa, the challenge is jobs and this is highly job intensive. And then lastly, of course, we need energy to power the economic growth because it is about the economy to address the stubbornly high levels of unemployment which then lead to increasing levels of poverty and in increasing levels of inequality. Absolutely. Bonang Mahale is my incredible shifter this evening. It's been a great pleasure and a great privilege to have you in studio this evening. Bonang Mahale started out as a medical doctor. I'm delighted he dropped out.